So if you'll turn in your Bibles or open up your app to Matthew chapter 7, we're going to look at verse 12. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, and there are also uh, note sheets in your worship folder this morning if you'd like to follow along with those also. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12 says this, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Or, if it's, as it's often quoted, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, often called the golden rule, right? Matter of fact, probably the, uh, the folks that put your Bible together decided, well, it's good enough for everybody else, we'll put it in here and we'll call it the golden rule. This morning, we're going to call it the gospel's golden rule, because truly, without being tied to the gospel and what Christ has done for us, this is kind of an empty platitude. But because it comes from the core of the gospel, this idea of loving others the way we want to be loved, it has power. This is another of the statements from the Sermon on the Mount that has been quoted over and over again by people in and out of the church, right? A few years ago, the idea was translated into a movie called Pay It Forward. The idea of that movie was that you treat three people in a selfless way, and then each of them will do the same to three others, and then those nine people will do the same to three others, and this attitude of serving will simply multiply till the world is completely changed for the good. Not sure that worked. It fell apart somewhere. And as we've seen this past week, we see this level of generosity and goodwill come out of the American people when there is a tragedy like the typhoon in the Philippines. There is within us this desire to, to do good. Well, as we dig into the, this one verse this weekend, now some of you are thinking, it's just one verse, he cannot take any time on this. Remember, this is me. I can talk, and I can talk, and I can talk. Here's the question, like the question about everything that Jesus taught us. Who and how is this actually being carried out in our life on an ongoing basis? Interestingly enough, this statement follows immediately after a discussion of God's goodness and His willingness to give. So I believe Jesus is now saying, as he has throughout this sermon, that we, yes, you and I, are to show goodness and have a generous spirit like God does. In looking back at Matthew 7, I believe we see a pattern emerging, and this is just one idea. But I think it'll help us see at least one possible way to see the progression of the teaching here. If you look at it this way, look back to verses 1 through 6 of chapter 7, I think we see faith. The faith that God is judge. That we don't have to judge. We don't have to make judgment calls on everybody in our life because God is ultimately a ju the judge. And we have faith that he'll do that. Verses 7 through 11, I believe, is about faith also. The faith that God answers prayer. And when we pray, we trust in the fact that he will answer in a way that brings him glory and is the best for us. And then we come to verse 12. And I think it's about faith too. 
that God uses our actions for his glory. So we're going to look at this important critical statement, and we're going to start at the end of the verse. Strange little phrase here that says, for this is the law and the prophets. This is the part that doesn't get quoted. For this is the law and the prophets. Let me share with you a few other verses that give this same idea. Matthew 5, 17, just a couple chapters back. Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Because Jesus fulfilled the law not only by being perfect, by being a sinless law keeper, but he loved his neighbor as himself to the end by giving up his life. See, he fulfilled the law and the prophets by being the sacrifice that was needed. James 2.8 says, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself and you are doing well. In Romans 5, 7, and 8, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Remember that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus expounded the real meaning of the original law as it was intended. That law put forth in the books of the Old Testament. He applied it correctly. And the people, it says, were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as having authority and not as the scribes. We saw that and we'll see that in a few verses later in Matthew 7, 28 and 29. You see, what had happened is that the scribes and the Pharisees, the leaders of the Jewish church, had failed in their attempts to explain the law correctly. Whereas Jesus explained it, and applied it, applied its real meaning, and exposed the error of the smart people. This point is illustrated perfectly in Jesus' statement here. Jesus was not instituting a new commandment. He was explaining that doing to others what you would have them do to you is a summary expression of what the Old Testament required. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Jesus is once again addressing the way the law had been misinterpreted and abused. You know, he wasn't saying, now this is what the law says, but this is what I say. He's t- what he says in, in the Sermon on the Mount is, this is what you're doing with it. It says this, but this is what's been going on. It's being misinterpreted. It's being abused. For instance, the Old Testament did not encourage or allow a person to be angry with his brother without cause. That wasn't part of what the law was about. It didn't encourage you to cover your neighbor's, neighbor's wife, but sadly, many of the Jews had interpreted the law in such a way. And in his masterful explanation of the law, Jesus is exposing the error of the scribes and the Pharisees, and he's preaching the righteousness demanded of those who wish to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, this is what the law was intended. What I'm doing is I'm bringing it back to you in its fullness. I'm explaining where you've gotten off track. I'm fulfilling the law. So that is kind of where we're at. We want to look now at the historical and the contextual placement of this command. It's important to know historically what Jesus is trying to say to his audience. And then it's important to see where this lies in the context of what he's saying. So historically, 
What Jesus is doing here is turning traditional teachings and philosophies on their ear. He's turning them around. He's saying, no, this is, what I'm saying is different than in what you are hearing anywhere else. In his commentary on Matthew 1 through 7, John MacArthur writes, every other form of this basic principle has been given in purely negative terms and is found in literature of almost every major religion and philosophical system. Here's what he means. The Jewish rabbi Hillel said, what is hateful to yourself, do not do to someone else. The book of Tobit in the Apocrypha teaches, what thou thyself hatest, to no man do. The Jewish scholars in Alexandria who translated the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, advised in a piece of correspondence this, as you wish that no evil befall you, but to be a partaker of all good things, so you should act on the same principle toward your subjects and offenders. Confucius taught this, what you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. One of the ancient Greek kings named Nicholas wrote, Do not do to others the things which make you angry when you experience them at the hands of other people. A Greek philosopher said, What you avoid suffering yourself, do not afflict to others. And the Stoics promoted this principle, What you do not want to be done to you, do not do to anyone else. So you see what's happening? In every case, the emphasis is the negative. The principle is an important part of right human relations, isn't it? Just don't do bad stuff to people. But it falls short, far short, of what Jesus is saying is God's perfect standard. There is definitely a difference in Jesus' statement here. You see, he's not saying to refrain from doing to others what you wouldn't want done to you. You see, because we could all do that, right? That's easy, right? Do nothing. Just don't do anything. No, Jesus is taking it a step further. He's saying, do to others, do, be proactive. Get up and do something to others that you would have them do unto you. The New American Standard Bible puts it this way, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. You see the difference? What Jesus is doing, he's flipping this entire idea and saying, don't just avoid things. No, push in. And do good things. Do to others the things that you'd have them to do you. Treat other people the way you want to be treated. Now, where does this fall within the context of what's been going on? Well, if you think back to chapter 5, verses 21 through 43, we talked that week and looked at the fact that what Jesus is saying, now you've heard this, but I say this, right? Here's the teaching you've received. Here's what you've heard either in philosophy or misinterpreted law. Now I'm saying to do this. It's not don't, it's do. You've heard don't do these things. I'm saying no, here are things you do. So we're going to look back at a couple months ago as we studied chapter 5. And we saw first this contrast between the prevailing teaching of the day and what it was saying, and then Jesus fulfilling the law to complete it. You know, don't we do this? We fall into a habit of defining our lives by what we don't do. Right? Christians are notorious about this. The world would say this too. They would define us this way too. Well, they don't do this and they don't do that. 
In contrast, Jesus says, let me tell you what to do. With the power, with my power and with my spirit as sons and daughters of the Most High God, here are things that you will see happen, things that I will be doing through you if you'll follow me completely. Wouldn't you like to be known for what you do? Like who you are, what you actually stand for, and not all the stuff we don't do? Because if you just look at what we don't do, we're pretty boring, aren't we? There's a reminder in verse 5, 17 that we have to keep in mind and i mentioned it a couple times but i want to say it again it says do not think that i have come to abolish the law and the prophets remember jesus didn't come to say throw all this out this is something completely new i've come i've not come to abolish them but to fulfill them now watch what jesus does in verse 21 of chapter 5 he says the prevailing teaching is don't murder okay don't do that we're all good right i'm really hoping we're all good on this okay Well, was that the fulfillment of the law? No, Jesus says, do be reconciled to the person at odds with you. We're all proud. I didn't kill anybody today. I mean, don't we answer questions this way, right? Have you you sinned this week? Well, I didn't kill anybody. Well, good for you. Jesus says, no, let me give you a harder saying. You got to make it right with the person who you're at odds with. That's a little tougher, isn't it? Verse 27, he says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Again, stated negatively. But Jesus said, I'm not abolishing the the law, but you're not fulfilling it when you lust. The fulfillment is to do. See, Jesus is saying, love people as brothers and sisters instead of sex objects. See, this isn't about just don't commit adultery. This is about going deeper. And saying, what are, you, what are you thinking and believing about the people around you? Verse 31, he said, you've heard it said that you shouldn't divorce without a certificate. Deuteronomy 24 talks about this, but they misinterpret it. So Jesus had to say, do what you'd want someone to do to you. Be faithful to your spouse. See, let's stop talking about divorce and what the ins and outs of that are. And let's just be faithful to our spouse. Don't we want that done to us? So we should do it to our spouse. Verse 33. You've heard it said, don't break your oath. Jesus says, here's something better. Do be a person of your word. In other words, you shouldn't have to take all these oaths and then worry about breaking them. You should just be a person of your word. Just say what you mean and mean what you say. That's how you want others to communicate with you. Communicate with them in this way. Verse 39. You've heard it said, don't leave retribution undone. You know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Jesus says, wait a minute, that kind of justice is for courts. Here's what you need to worry about. Be a forgiving person and a giving person. You see, he takes it two steps further. I want you to forgive, and then I want you to give to that person. That's why some people call these the hard sayings of Jesus. Verse 43, he said, you've heard it said to just show love to your friends, right? Jesus says, no. He goes way far on this one. Do be perfect. God loves those who don't love him. Treat them the way you want to be treated. Love your enemies. Remember, he went another step 
And let me tell you who your, who your neighbors are. Your enemies, too. Love your neighbors. That includes your friends and your enemies. Another piece of the context is going to come here in several chapters further in Matthew, in Matthew 22, 39. He's going to restate this same idea. Jesus must have thought we needed to hear this multiple times. He quotes Leviticus 19, 18, when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. This is the fulfillment of the law. So if we don't hear anything else today, hear this. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. If I love my neighbor, see, it's this simple. If I love my neighbor, I won't have extramarital sex with them, will I? Or even lust after them, will I? If I love my neighbor, I won't murder them. (laughs) Or even hate them, will I? If I love my neighbor, I won't steal from them, will I? If I love my neighbor, I won't covet what they have, will I? Therefore, as we love, we are fulfilling God's law, are we not? God's laws dealing with human relationships can be summarized by that simple verse in Leviticus that tells us to love our neighbor as ourself. And that's a good standard, isn't it? Because I think most of us kind of like ourselves. We take care of ourselves. Husbands, we're told in, in the New Testament to love our wives as we love our own bodies. James 2.8 calls all of this the royal law. So, how should we then live? To borrow a phrase from Francis Schaeffer, who's now been quoted two weeks in a row. How should we then live? Well, I think we ought to love in all ways. I'll put it this way. We have to love with and to. With and to. Let me explain. I want to give us three simple ways. We have to love with our head. Love with our head. We have to love through our knowledge, our understanding, our own interaction with Scripture, and we minister to and into the heads of others, into their belief systems. Now, what's critical here is we have to know the truth. We have to be people of the Word. We have to lead others into God's truth. Our daily lives, our schedules, our calendars, and yes, even our wallets should show that we place high value on speaking truth into others' lives and grounding everything we say in Scripture. What I mean by this is that we need to be men and women of God's Word. We need to read it, study it, know it, apply it, and share it. You see, as much as I think highly of and value my own opinion, and I struggle with that, mind you, because sometimes I feel this way. There's my opinion, and then there's the wrong one, right? I think very highly of my opinion, but as much as I highly value my own opinion, the most important words I can speak into a person's life are the words of Scripture. Why? Well, Hebrews 4.12 explains that. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See, my words are just my opinions, but God's words dig deep into the intentions of the heart. 
We have to love each other with our head and to their head, to their thinking, to their belief systems. See, if we can, if we can help each other get the right belief systems, then we're going to help somebody along their, the way. And then we have to love with our heart. It's not all just slamming somebody over the head with a Bible. We have to do it with compassion and care. We have to love with our hearts and into the hearts of others. The saying goes like this, people do not care how much you know until what? They know how much you care. How about this? How about we be people who allow Christ's heart of compassion to touch others? The question I believe for each of us is this. When was the last time that you simply sat with a person who needed to be reminded that Jesus loves them? Or needed to be reminded of their true identity in Christ? Or needed to be encouraged or told that they have value? When was the last time you allowed God to work through your heart to another's heart so that they could hear words like, I'm proud of you? You are so loved, my friend. Your sin doesn't define you. Live in repentance and we'll walk in this journey together. When was the last time you just sat quietly with someone and let them share their hurt? When was the last time you simply reached out and embraced someone or cried with them or encouraged them? Simply treated them in a way that you yourself want to be treated. We have to love with our head and with our heart and with our hands. See, we have to put our money and our sweat where our mouth is. Now, the ladies in the office didn't think I should say that about sweat because it's just disgusting, but I thought I'd put it in there. You know, we can teach all the right things. We can say we care in tough times, but we have to put feet to pavement. We have to actually do it. We have to allow the hands of Christ. The hands of Christ. Those hands that were wounded and scarred for us. To love others. And we have to be willing to let our hands be scarred and sore and bleeding for others. Had Jesus not done this part, we wouldn't have any chance to know God. Let's love in all ways. With our head, with truth, with our heart, with compassion and care, and with our hands. That we serve others. And then we need to love in all situations. In all situations. So the question I want to answer these last few minutes is, what has God called us to offer other people? What's he calling us to offer other people? As we treat others the way we want to be treated. First, I believe he's calling us to show grace. To show grace rather than karma. The shorthand for grace is this, mercy, not merit. See, we can't earn it. 
Grace is getting what you don't deserve and not getting what you do deserve. Grace is the opposite of karma, right? Karma is all about getting what you deserve. Grace is the love of God shown to the unlovely. The peace of God given to the restless. It is the unmerited favor of a loving God. Grace is free, sovereign favor to the undeserving. Grace is unconditional love toward a person who does not deserve it. Grace is love that cares and that stoops and that rescues. Grace is a God reaching down to people who are in rebellion against him. Grace is one-way love. This is what we are to show to others, God's grace. God's grace. Whether we get it back or not, we're to show grace to others. Now, as we do this, let's remember this. Let me clarify very carefully. Grace doesn't remove God's command to obey. Paul Tripp, who was here last year speaking, made this statement. Grace doesn't remove God's command to obey. No, grace forgives your disobedience and empowers you to desire and do God's will. You see, grace is seeing sin as God sees it. It is not. Let me repeat, it is not. Do whatever you want and that's okay. I'm not God, so just do what you think makes you happy and I'm sure God will understand and give you a do-over. No. Grace is calling one another to repentance. Standing in the joy of God's forgiveness and the living in the empowerment that comes in God's will. That's grace. See, it isn't grace to let somebody just sin and, well, okay, whatever. Pat them on the back, though. It's going to be okay. No, grace is saying just come home. We're to show grace. Number two, we're to offer forgiveness rather than condemnation. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. The way in which one wants to be treated should determine the way we treat others, right? So forgiveness should come naturally to believers who love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and who love our neighbor as ourselves. Let me read the entire few verses there in Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the what? Law and the prophets. There it is again. We're to offer forgiveness. Forgiveness is a wonderful act of love, isn't it? Let's remember, though, that how we are learning that this happens practically, we really cannot love this way. It's tough to forgive, isn't it? We cannot forgive this way apart from a growing understanding of our own sinfulness and the love and forgiveness that we've been shown by Jesus. See, the more we realize how forgiven we are, the more we can forgive. We can forgive only as deeply as we know God's forgiveness in our own life. 
We're to show grace. We're to offer forgiveness. Number three, we're to show discernment rather than judgment. We talked about this earlier this month. It's easy to begin with our standards, isn't it? And then impose them on God. Rather than accepting His standards and allowing ourselves to be changed into the image of His Son. Challenge here is that God is perfect. And He does not bend His standards to the advantage of anyone. It is our standards that must change. So that we will see each other as God sees us. It is then... And only then that we'll love each other and be full of grace. We can be discerning of sin and help others turn and go in the direction of holiness. This is discernment. It is that parent who says, Billy, get out of the street. That's not safe. It's for another's good. See, that's not judgment. That's discernment. Let me give you a real simple way how to tell the difference between discernment and judgment, because this gets thrown around a lot, doesn't it? Well, stop judging me. Stop judging me. Well, I hope Billy doesn't say that standing in the middle of the street. Mom, stop judging me. <laughs> right? Here's how you can tell the difference. Discernment lifts another up to God's standards and restores them to right relationship with God. Does that make sense? Discernment lifts another up into God's standards and restores them to a right relationship with God. Judgment, on the other hand, tears down another person using only our standards and cares nothing about restoration in a right place with God. Judgment just wants to prove its own point and feel superior. Discernment lifts up. Judgment pushes down. Discernment causes someone to move back to God and judgment pulls them away from God because it's not about that anyway. It's just about me and my opinion. We must know and then live the difference. Number four, we can fulfill this verse by carrying another's burden and restoring them rather than give up because that's easy to do, isn't it? You ever thought this is beyond hope? Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a trans any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. We could spend an entire sermon right there. But here's a key verse, verse 2. Bear one another's burdens. You know what the next phrase is? And so fulfill the law of Christ. There it is again. Bear one another's burdens. See, I believe this verse applies in two ways. There, this is true of someone struggling with sin. Or someone finding themselves in a place of weakness and frustration or under a burden too heavy to carry themselves. What are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to carry those burdens. And is the person with discernment to restore them? Timothy is a prime example of someone that looked out for others. I'm in the middle of kind of a study of the relationship between Paul and Timothy. And throughout the the letters to Timothy, Paul refers to him in these very fatherly kind of ways. I'm very intrigued by that. Philippians 2, 20 and 21 in the New Living Translation says this, I have no one else like Timothy who genuinely cares about your welfare. All the others care only for themselves and not for what matters to Jesus Christ. Timothy is lauded here as a man who genuinely cares about these people's welfare. 
There was a genuine love for what Jesus loves in Timothy. He put others' welfare as a top priority. And apparently his lifestyle was a model for what Paul said in Philippians 2.4 that says each of you should not look on his own interests but also on the interests of others. Timothy's example is one for us today, isn't it? It's another reason we need to be in the Word. If we don't ever read about Timothy's example, we can't follow it, can we? Others people's, other people's needs, interests, cares, problems, victories, joys should be important to us. Other people should be important to us. Other people's stuff should be important to us. But our stuff is important to us. And we want what other people, we want other people to take an interest, don't we? In our stuff. But what is the way to apply this? To carry another's burden. To reach out even if we are burdened. A couple of weeks back, I hit a wall. I can't really even say what it was. I don't know if, who knows. But I found myself in a situation where I crashed. I was actually sitting in my car in the parking lot at Stone Ridge. I couldn't put sentences together. I couldn't think. I was unable to even choose a place for Terry and I to eat dinner. Complete shutdown. Wow. What in the world was going on? I've never had that happen before. This should be really very simple. I am just choosing a place to eat dinner. I was in a weak, frustrating spot, in need of someone to encourage me. And so I got a hold of a friend. And what he did was he helped lift the burden I was under. You see, he was there to restore me and pray for me and give me renewed energy and remind me of the truth. We are to carry each other's burdens and restore one another into right relationship with Jesus Christ. Number five, we're to serve others rather than be served. Now you may say, well, I'll do something for someone else if someone did something for me. I, I, would, I would serve people if somebody would serve me. Okay, then that's the point. Let's just start there. We have had someone do something for us. You have had someone do something for you. Jesus Christ, the Creator, came and lived and died and rose again for you. Something that you could never do for yourself. See, it's why we serve. Because we have been served. It's why we love. Because we have been loved. It's why we forgive. Because we have been forgiven. Serving others must become our lifestyle, for it was the lifestyle of Jesus. You know, we, we see flashes of this, don't we? In our own lives. We, we serve people food at holidays, but then we forget that they still need a meal on December 28th. We may participate in a day of service, but then we settle into our recliners for the other 364 days a year. We'll give, but only up until the point where it hurts. Our service to others around us, whether in the church or outside these walls, must be ongoing. We must become conduits, if you will, of Christ's love in an ongoing and growing way. I remember several years ago, the house next to ours was on fire. 
Now, the damage ended up not being extensive, but enough to cause the family to have to move out while repair work was done. Well, the neighborhood came out in force. Maybe some just to watch the fire, but they came out in force, offering clothes and food. A collection was taken among those of us who had gathered there that night to help pay for a hotel and other needs for the family. Wonderful neighborliness, right? That's what neighbors are about. But I remember that after that initial outpouring of care, there was, as my mother would put it, zippity-doo-dah. Nothing, including from me. I'd done my part. It had been convenient and had really cost me very little. Very little effort, very little time, very little cash. But we're to be conduits of Christ's love, serving on an ongoing and regular basis to the needs around us. You see, we're supposed to do to others what we want done to us. And then number six, we're to care for souls rather than ignoring the deepest needs. I go on lots of mission trips. I love to minister in other countries. I love that I can take groups of new lifers and impact the community in Costa Rica. Building homes and bettering the community and building better living conditions for people. I love that we send teams to Uganda to impact the community of Makono and that hundreds of you sponsor children every month so they can be fed and be clothed and go to school and, get, and have better lives. But we must not forget that the deepest need of every person is to hear, know, and believe the gospel of Jesus. J. Mack Stiles, in his great book, Marks of the Messenger, says that we must know that our humanitarian efforts are the outpouring of the gospel's impact on us. They are not the gospel. You see, we can never confuse our good works with God's good news. We have to care for souls. Yes, we must meet the physical needs of those in need. We must care for our neighbors when fire breaks out. We must be involved in community efforts to feed the poor and clothe the naked. But these can never take the place of caring for a soul. It is the soul that is eternal. We can't forget that our efforts to share the gospel of Jesus with another person have eternal consequences. In 2 Corinthians 12, 15, the Apostle Paul says this, and I hope this convicts you as much as it does me. He says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. You know, we talk a lot around here about reaching out through love works. Here and all over the world, and this is good work. But ultimately meeting the one great spiritual need of every soul is the most important. To care for their soul so that they can come to know Jesus. You see, we want our soul cared for, don't we? We should care for the souls of others. And I want to give you a practical way to do this. In your worship folder this morning, I want you to pull out this card. It's the only one in there this morning that's slick. 
Next weekend, Pastor Steve will continue teaching in this chapter, Matthew chapter 7, and we'll start in verse 13. The sermon is entitled, The Most Important Decision You Will Ever Make. It is a sermon entirely gospel presentation of what it means to bow your knee and be a follower of Jesus Christ. We have an opportunity to care for souls with this one card. I want you on your outline somewhere, on the, your worship folder, or if you didn't get one on the hand of the person next to you. Write down the name of, the per, of a person who God brings to mind that you can give this card to. And invite them to come with you next weekend so that they can hear about the most important decision that they'll ever make. Let's care for the souls of the people around us enough to let them hear the gospel. Hopefully they've been seeing it in you. And they can come and have an aha moment. Oh, this is what she's been talking about. Th that's what's different. Give this card to someone this week. Let's not come back next week and have these used as bookmarks in our Bible. So, our living up to God's standards, God's laws, our living in the truth of it, hinges greatly on loving others. If we haven't gotten that out of the Sermon on the Mount. For loving others is the fulfillment of the law. The Sermon on the Mount, on the Mount once again tells us how Christ expects us to be. And we know that Christ did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. We also know that the righteousness of the Pharisees, that hypocritical self-righteousness based on traditions, is not enough to gain right standing with God. Jesus said our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. That means we can't attain God's kind of righteousness by our own self-righteousness or our self-righteous merits. How can we attain it? By grace through faith. That's the only way. The only way you and I can love God's way is to have Christ's righteousness loving through us. This kind of love is divine. We can't do it on our, on our own. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. The love God demands that we have for others is impossible on our own. But it is attainable as we walk in the Spirit. So what's God said to you today? Has he pointed out something to you? Be careful to obey. I'd encourage you to come to a prayer partner this morning. And pray with them about what God's spoken to you about. Maybe turn around and use your chair as an altar. Kneel there or come to these altars at the front. Maybe you want to come and bring this card. And pray for the person who you're going to give it to this week. That person whose soul you're caring for. And then act on your prayer. Father, as we worship you,
May our greatest act of worship be to obey. To, to have listened to your spirit and said yes. To agree with what you have told us today. Father, may we be people who step out and move and do. May we treat others, care for others, and love others the way that we want to be treated and loved and cared for. I encourage you just to quietly spend a few moments listening to God. Move in any way that He leads you. Then if you'd like, you can stand as our worship team leads us.